Our first message in our series, Serving the Creature, dealt with some of the common points affirming the notion that the Bible approves of homosexuality. Uh, We looked at Genesis 19, at Leviticus 18 and 20. We looked at the words of Jesus and other New Testament passages and concluded that the traditional view that sees homosexuality as counter to God's original design was the most consistent and true to the rest of the scriptures. We noted that Romans 1 is really part of a bigger picture in which Paul is trying to highlight the gospel, but he's trying to show the necessity of the gospel by demonstrating the reality of sin. Thus, we have Romans 1. And the sin is basically the rejection of God and his moral authority and moral character. Now, while we affirm the veracity of Scripture on this topic, that is not all that can be said about this topic. This is obviously a very touchy topic in our culture. We have no bone to pick here. We're just trying to take what we believe to be God's revelation and cut it straight. And I'm not saying I always get it right. I want to always get it right, but I'm not going to stand up here and say that I've been infallible. But I do think the Bible is clear about this topic. Uh, You know, there's a lot of work uh, done to say that we should be affirming about this. Well, I would agree we need to be affirming, but this is what we can be affirming about. We can be affirming that all individuals are made in the image of God. We can be affirming that the gospel transforms anyone who comes to him humbly. We can be affirming that we all sin. And what we want is for our church to be a place that no matter what people struggle with, including sexual sin, they have a place to where the gospel can apply to them. They have a place where we can humbly confess, repent of our sin, that we can find help. So let us again understand that people who take the stand that homosexuality is okay, they're not our enemy, right? We are talking about an idea that uh, we are addressing, uh, that the culture adopts, and we're saying we don't agree with that, and here's why. And so we still are going to run this parallel track of, of love and truth. We speak the truth in what? In love, not in condemnation. And so we're extending grace. And usually what happens is that churches err uh, on an extreme of one side or the other. Uh, they give truth and then they condemn. Or they are uber-affirming, using that in the cultural sense, but don't speak truth. And so what we want to do is uh, speak the truth in love, in a very real sense, okay? Not just, not just in, in words. So uh, I want our church to be a place where people can find hope and freedom, even with sexual sin. Can I get an amen with that? You, you agree with me? Okay. Let's just go ahead and go before the Lord right now. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We acknowledge 
that we as people are fallible, but your word, your word is perfect. Your word is true. And I ask that you would help us to understand it, but more than that, to fall under your authority and to do it. That's our desire, that we be faithful disciples. And Lord, I pray for those <clears throat> that um, agree that the Bible says that homosexuality is sin, <clears throat> that they can operate with great grace, holding on to that. And I pray for those who disagree that your Holy Spirit would uh, just cause their mind to be open to another side and that we could even enter into a conversation about that. And I pray for those who are struggling with this very thing, the Lord, that they would know that there's hope, that they would know that your gospel is true for them, that they would know that this church is for them, and that anyone who uh, comes openly and humbly before you can find help. And so may that be the case. We love you, and we entreat your Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You know what I find is that most people that accept that God exists actually don't mind accepting the idea that God judges too. You say, really? I, I, this is true. Think about this. As long as that judgment aligns with their own sensibilities, right? I mean, people don't mind judging a rapist, right? They don't mind judging people and thinking that God would also judge, let's say, a kidnapper. And nowadays, that also God judges those who are in the political party that they are not a part of. But it's when God's judgment gets too close, or it differs with their own code that we wiggle and squirm, and we either outright reject the Bible, or we force a meaning into it that requires far more faith than it does intellectual honesty. Gave them up. It's a phrase that describes a kind of judgment that is anything but passive. It's repeated three times in Romans 1, verses 24 through 32. When God withdraws his restraining and protective hand, he's allowing the consequences of sin to take their inevitable and destructive course. It reminds me of the movie Out of Africa with Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. For those of you under 30, Google it, you'll know they were real people, okay? Streep's character says in the movie, when the gods want to punish you, they answer your prayers. When God allows us to go our own way, unrestrained into sin, what Paul is saying, this can be degrading that this diminishes the, the dignity of human beings. We lose a peace of mind. We lose a clear conscience. And it tears at the social fabric of our lives. It destroys personal relationships, marriages, 
families, churches, cities, even countries. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, Sin puts gravel in our bread and wormwood in our cup. (laughs) This judicial abandonment of God is not a new concept birthed by Paul. Listen to the psalmist. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Hosea said, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. And in Acts, it says in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Well, what was it that God was giving them up to? It says, lust of their hearts to impurity in the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, what is inside a man, Jesus said, is really the problem. He said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. I wish I'd have had that verse for my wife during COVID who made me wash my hands every time I went outside, came back in the house. But we're still married, so I thank God for that. James reiterates, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When a person is given up to lust, the desire or passion of the flesh become king. Now, but there there can be some good passion. This is a passion that is characterized in another way. But when a person is given over to this, that immoral passion becomes king. Carl Truman, in his insightful book, Strange New World, addresses how passion and feelings take precedent over any moral structure of God. Listen to what he says. The modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. Take, for example, the notion of authenticity. This is the idea that the genuine person is the one who acts outwardly in a manner consistent with how they think or feel inside. In a sense, we can all agree this is a good thing. We have pejorative terms for those whose outward behavior stands at odds with what they are really thinking hypocritical, duplicitous, two-faced. But modern society has exalted this notion of authenticity to the point where it, at times it cuts directly against the value that previous generations placed on restraint and self-control. The modern self is not simply one who sees inner feelings as authoritative. The modern self also largely rejects the idea that human nature has any intrinsic moral structure or significance. That's a good insight. Rolling Stone magazine reported how Andrew Garfield, the actor, is trying to live his life as openly as possible, including when it comes to his sexuality. Garfield explained that he currently identifies as a heterosexual man, but he's not shutting out the the possibility that he could be attracted at a future date to men. And so... After explaining he doesn't want to put up walls uh, on any sexual experience, listen closely to what he says. 
I have an openness to any impulse that may arise within me at any time. I have an openness to any impulses that may arise within me at any time. That illustrates how passions, and again, I'm using it in a pejorative sense with how Paul is defining it here, is in the driver's seat. And it's the epitome of the world's idea of being authentic. (laughs) Again, let me state the absurdity of this again. That being authentic is defined as giving yourself over to all fleshly desires. Now, although Satan was responsible for tempting Adam and Eve to sin, they chose to voluntarily place their wills above God's. And that was really the heart of their sin and our sin as well. Putting our feelings and passion and lust above God's standard and then wrapping that rebellion in language today of authenticity or inclusion that is just another expression of mankind's rebellion against God. Creating our own reality will invite a whole host of self-proclaimed remedies that are going to lead to more loneliness, frustration, meaninglessness, anxiety, and despair. Janet and I, I was trying to watch the PBS special that Ken Burns did on Ernest Hemingway. Uh, We actually visited Hemingway's home in Cuba. Quite fascinating. And so I was keenly interested, and after watching the first two, it was so depressing, (laughs) particularly in his relationships and his attitude towards sexuality. I really felt sad for him because he was so lost and trying to grope to find meaning and really so insecure about his relationships. As sophisticated, self-sufficient mankind draws further from God, God gives them over to the consequences of their rebellion against him. Commentator Alan Johnson said, without God there are no abiding truths, lasting principles or norms, and man is cast upon a sea of speculation and skepticism and attempted self-salvation. Enter the idea of sexual freedom, sexual expression, including homosexuality, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. When people reject God, there is no basis for man's dignity. Left to themselves, humanity then becomes dehumanized. People are using their bodies not for how they were created or designed by God. Following passions and lusts, take precedence over God's design, and physical experiences become more important than spiritual realities. Now, if I were to say, why don't you take this steak and mashed potatoes I have and feed it through your ears and enjoy the meal, 
You wouldn't do that because you weren't designed that way. Because your physical body tells you something. It has a design. And we don't have homosexual sex because we were designed to have sexual relations with the opposite sex in marriage. Paul calls same-sex impurity, which will lead people to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This word for impurity is used 11 times throughout the New Testament. Nine of those, it's clearly within the context of sexual immorality or sensuality. So by dishonoring God, men in the end dishonor their own bodies. Truman speaks of disordering the sexes, saying it's when, quote, gender is separated from biological sex and psychology trumps biology. The language is that of inner feelings, individual experience, and personal sense. The person's own feelings are given such authority that it's hard to see how any person might challenge an individual's view of their own identity without being immediately liable to accusations of oppression or worse, end quote. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So whenever there's an amen, that means think about this for a second. You know, it's kind of an emphatic thing that God's the one who created you and he deserves being blessed and worshiped. Did you ever think that your worship is done in obedience with how you use your body? It is. Without reverence for God, respect for creation suffers. Now, what is the truth? What's being exchanged for a lie? It's that God exists and that he is the Lord or authority over our lives. The object of our worship always becomes the master of our behavior. This is a law of human nature, and as much as God made us to worship and to live for him. The sin of idolatry, whether in the age-old worship of nature or in the modern worship of ourselves, is consequently the same. Worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Now, Paul uses the definite article in the Greek here that the literal translation is the lie, not just a lie. And the lie is essentially idolatry which puts us in the place of God. It's the lie that you will be like God, as the serpent said to Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.5. He told Eve not to believe the stuff that God was saying to her. God didn't really mean that. She knew more than God what was best for her. She could call the shots. And this is the epitome of foolishness. Why? Because God is the creator. Because he's the moral authority. That he is deserving of being worshipped and blessed. But men insist, as it said in Romans 1.18, to suppress the truth. Why? For their own unrighteousness. Because man wants to do what he wants to do without the constraints of a God. 
That's why. Thus, mankind is serving the creature. When people reject the existence and authority of God, they don't stop worshiping. They direct their religious affections elsewhere. They love and worship the feelings of the creature. They love the sexual pleasures of the creature. They elevate the authority of the creature. And they worship these things. And thus they serve the creature rather than the creator. Tim Keller addressed how sexual feelings and desires can be influenced by social forces. Listen to this. Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in AD 800. He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. The other feeling he senses is a same-sex attraction to which he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He'll look at the aggression and think, that is not who I want to be. And I will seek deliverance in therapy and anger management programs. He will look at his sexual desires, however, and conclude, that is who I am. And Keller concludes, and where did our Anglo-Saxon warrior and our Manhattan man get their grids? From their cultures, their communities, their heroic stories. They are filtering their feelings, jettisoning some, and embracing others. They are choosing to be the selves their cultures tell them they may be. End quote. we see how the God-given design can take a back seat and the culture gets the final say. That's what Paul is describing. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable, uh, to dishonorable passions. For their Notice again, I think there are honorable passions. These are dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. We see the phrase again, God gave them up, and it relates to dishonorable passions. Paul now moves to specifically how this idolatry is manifested. Passion has to do with desires, emotions, or feelings in this case, dishonorable ones. They dishonor the God who made them, and they dishonor the order and purpose for which they were made. It's helpful to remember that Paul wrote Romans from the city of Corinth. It was a city in the shadow of the temple Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty and sexual pleasure. Her temple commanded the region standing 1,900 feet overhead on the top of a summit. Temple prostitutes enticed worshipers from all over the Roman Empire. In fact, so famous was the city's reputation, I should say infamous, that the phrase Corinthianize was coined to mean to practice immorality. 
Much like we get the word now, sodomy, after Sodom. This kind of immorality Paul is referencing is women exchanging natural affection contrary to nature. Natural relations is that in accordance with the attributes and purposes for which are in view of one's origin, namely the body. The body says something about who we are. It has information about who we are as male or female. Now, some want uh, want to understand natural to mean that which a person wants to do. What is their passion? In other words, reject the body's design and follow your passions. And critics will say, regardless of the design of the body, what is natural is how a person feels or desires. First of all, this is not a rendering Paul or any New Testament writer would have understood. It is actually the opposite of what Paul is saying. Follow one's passion is not the meaning that New Testament writers had when they said, don't follow your lust or passions. It meant the opposite. I mean, it's not a moral or courageous feat to give in to whatever your lust or passions tell you to do. I mean, listen, is that what Paul meant when he said, I'm like a boxer? Did I have to train my body for the sake of the gospel? Are we to understand Paul to mean do whatever your passions tell you or whatever you feel? Is that what he meant? No. He was extolling the virtues of discipline. There is no discipline involved in following your flesh. If my flesh or passions tell me to lie, do I follow that? Are heterosexuals to commit fornication and adultery to follow what they feel like doing? It might be natural to be bitter and unforgiving, but we choose to love and forgive. Again, following your passions is the opposite of what Paul means. Natural is what is consistent with your createdness with your body here in Romans 1. Others try to argue that natural should be to understand uh, what the Hellenistic world or the Greek culture was like, and that's what you follow. We're to follow the customs from the culture. That would be what was natural for everybody. But this flies in the face of all the other scriptures that encourage us not to be conformed to the world or follow the culture. Listen, if you're missing the point, let me just give it to you straight, okay? The point is homosexuality is considered a sin by God. And no personal feelings or cultural movements or politically correct attitude countermands God's design and directive. But listen, we're not to go to town on this and make other people our enemy. We we hold this truth with an open heart and open hands, with an attitude that, yes, this is what you're struggling with. I've got great news for you, that there's freedom available, that the gospel applies to you, that there's a place for you, 
that you are loved by God, that you're important to God. That's our message. Verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. If there were any confusion about what Paul meant about natural relations, the point is made clear here when Paul says men's relation with women is what is natural. Genesis lays out the original design by God when it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And Jesus gave his stamp of approval on the same. When in a discussion with the Pharisees about divorce, he says, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Listen, staying with the male and female, you know, relationship and understanding that distinction, that's not an Old Testament thing or just an Old Testament thing. That's a Jesus thing. That's a God thing. That's God's design. Stuart Briscoe wrote, when sexuality is misunderstood, the sheer power of unrestrained sexual drive and uneducated sexual insight will produce all manner of aberrant sexual behavior. In short, confusion about God breeds confusion about man, which breeds confusion about sexuality, which produces sexual confusion and chaos. Passion for one another means passion for the same type, male with male. The words Paul uses for women and men here are specific terms, meaning, you know, male and female. There is no textual or cultural first century reason to interpret the noun nature as meaning my nature or the adjective natural as meaning what seems natural to me. Nature means God's created order. To act against nature means to violate the order which God has established. Whereas to act according to nature means to behave in accordance with the intention of the creator. A person out of touch with the reality of God is out of touch with reality. Including the truth about the design and purpose of humanity and sexuality. To be out of touch with the meaning of humanity means a crisis of identity. We see this all over, which understandably brings confusion concerning sexuality. Proponents of homosexuality try to strain at this passage to mean it's wrong for heterosexuals to do homosexual acts, but it's natural for homosexuals to do homosexual acts. That is such a convoluted approach in light of God already conveying the male-female design from the beginning and Jesus commending that design. It's hardly confusing when Paul writes, men committing shameless acts with men. Nowhere is Paul differentiating pedophilia 
from two grown consenting adults. And that's again what some critics will say. It was okay to have two consenting adults, but just not pedophilia. Listen, it's all shameless, all right? The shame comes from the complete lack of control to where men are consumed with other men. It reminds us of the scene in Sodom where the men were knocking on Lot's door and the angels struck those men and boys blind and they keep knocking, trying to get at the men inside. It's crazy. Listen, it is shameful to make God a liar, to defy his clear design and instruction. And then by loving what he hates, justifying what he denounces, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, speaks to those who practice such things, living with the full consequences. Notice Paul gives a nod to wrong belief, wrong theology, believing wrong things about God, wrong things about men when he, when he calls this error, error. So th- this has something to do with what we believe. So we're really, we're really talking about a kind of worldview that is destructive, right? Recent reports on STDs show a 4% increase in chlamydia since 2020, a 28% increase in gonorrhea, and a 74% increase in syphilis since 2017. Now listen, these stats are attributable to heterosexual and homosexual activity. And just a small sample of consequences. The point is, sexual sin has a self-destructive quality. And it's not just physical. There is deception cultural pull, a fleshly component to sexual sin that entraps instead of frees us. In a past interview, popular blogger Jen Hatmaker was asked the question, do you think an LGBT relationship can be holy? Here was her reply, I do. And my views here are tender. This is a very nuanced conversation. And it's hard to nail down in one sitting. I've seen too much pain and rejection at the intersection of the gay community and the church. Every believer that witnesses that much overwhelming sorrow should be tender enough to do some hard work here. But former lesbian Rosaria Butterfield reproved Hatmaker for her, quote, tenderness that leaves people in sin. Butterfield wrote this. Listen closely. If this were 1999, the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a balm of Gilead. I would have thought, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, which was queer theory and English literature and culture, and in my church. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of sin and I suffered the consequences. Today I hear Jen's words, and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. 
If I were still in the thick of battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's word would have put a millstone around my neck. To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marked my life. Our sin deceives us, end quote. My friends, the message of Romans is that it is the gospel that brings truth and freedom. And it is only in Christ that we find our true and deepest identity. That is good news. That is the book of Romans. And that's what we have the next 42 years to study. So let's <laughs> enjoy that together. Pray with me, will you?